Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with Vangelis Limporidis. Vangelis, I think I, I, I said it wrong. I'm sorry about that. Please, please say it yourself. I need to make sure we are saying that correctly. Limporidis. Limporidis, yes. And everybody, and I, I was talking to him offline, and I'm just going crazy over the content. It is like so, so many interesting information that has everything to do with, with our podcast. So one of my questions is, when we were on the end of the last episode and you were mentioning how it's going to take time It's going to take a while to get this fully regulated to use when we're mentioning using that for, for healthcare. So how far do you believe we are from that? So is it a testing phase? And how far do you think this is something that is going to start being accessible to people? And, you know, regular people, not only, you know, crazy millionaires that can, yes. you know. <laughs> yes, yes. First of all, excellent question. The promise is... For everyone, it's about democratization of the, the intervention, right? It's not about the a few that will benefit from that. That's a basic premise and promise. There are not many psychologists, for example, to cover the, the needs. But if you create psychoeducation and psycho elements of psychotherapy, behavioral therapy and all that, that can be distributed at scale. So you produce one, you consume at the range of uh, millions, then everyone can benefit. So it's a broadcasting media that carries potential for therapy. The second is that one of the principal reasons why I left academia to go to the industry is to be able to execute on specs within the time frame that I want to see accelerated pathways to uh, reach the patient fast. To give you an understanding, a project that I worked in, in rehabilitation of paraplegics at USC in 2010 is still not in the market. But something that I worked a few years ago in the, the private sector is now at the market. So the market allows, if you know how to do this translation from academic, speculative, or evidence-based processes and mechanisms into novel products, into the, the marketplace, it's going to be much faster. Three years ago, I joined as the chief design officer, a company called Applied VR, now a leader in uh, VR therapeutics. And from a C-level standpoint, as the key designer and the person that understands both the medium, the technology, the content side, the, the therapeutic potential and the mechanisms around it, I designed and implemented with the, the team the first behavioral intervention for chronic pain management that now got a breakthrough device designation from the FDA, hence an, an accelerated path towards clearance from the FDA. So you're going to have a platform in VR for that delivers chronic pain management and other principal components of that in virtual reality for the mass industry. 10% of the people in the United States have uh, chronic pain and they live with chronic pain. Will it get reimbursed? That's the, the second key component. Yes, something we proved clinical efficacies, the multiple clinical studies that the, the company has done on the, the platform in order to receive the breakthrough device designation from the, the FDA. In a few months, it will hopefully be cleared by the FDA. Will it be embraced by patients, by providers and all that? These are things that the company and everyone else in the game work for the past four or five years all together to achieve. 
to prove that there are health economics that drive adoption, that the clinical efficacy is there and clinical evidence and usability factors that allow people with these conditions to adopt and find a relief and therapy in these platforms. So we're not that far away. What we, we see now is um, massive interest from big pharmas. There are various big pharmas that either in partnership or in-house, they develop teams to explore and exploit VR and immersive media for diagnosis and therapy. In a conservative way, I'll give three to five years to have a lot of options in various indications, including treating phobias and other things that they're like lower risk that can be seen also as wellness application, applications that don't specifically require a regulatory agency like the, the FDA overseeing it, and connect the dots between what is the unregulated wellness, let's say, over-the-counter pharmacy versus something that you need a prescription in order to acquire. That's where we are and what we're working on at the moment. Yeah, so yes, I completely get it. A long way to go, but still a lot of exciting things. And I'm just thinking a long way to go because that's the US only you're talking about, right? Imagine like being like going on a global level, especially developing countries like here in Brazil. But uh, a lot of exciting things here. And I, I really would like you to comment what we were talking offline as also using those technologies for phobias, fighting phobias. Uh, you mentioned also schizophrenia. Could we just go briefly over that before we completely change the subject? Absolutely. Half of it is exposure therapy. You expose someone to some cues. Uh, for example, I have fear of heights. You get me slowly in a control environment to experience extreme, or you build up how extreme this uh, exposure is to my fear, uh, and that brings arousal. And while you're aroused, the psychologist provides the coping mechanisms, the relief mechanisms, the regulatory mechanisms in order for that to normalize. And what we see is that it works. Exposure, 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 therapy, exposure, therapy creates into normalization. And then you find immediate relief when you physically address your fear cue. So exposure therapy has a, a big a bibliography on how it works in VR and all that, and it's the, the low-hanging fruit. A mass, very much needed for mass population that suffers from fears, but, you know, the mechanism of action are rather simple there. When we go to other things like uh, schizophrenia, then we're talking about more advanced concepts. One of the, the mechanisms, as we, we said, it was trying to visualize the voices that somebody with a borderline psychosis or within the spectrum experience and visualize the, these voices. First, manufacture, create the voice to match the voice that they, they're hearing and then embody that voice in a pet, a little uh, something, another human, and get the, the patient in VR where they experience listening to the voice while they're seeing the entity. And somehow that we see some first evidence that that brings a massive normalization because you, you're not thinking that you're crazy because you're hearing voices, but you associate these voices with an entity that you experience, that exists, that you see, that you interact with. So you build memories of this entity. And suddenly it's not the, the fearing whatever that voice that is the voice of madness, 
but it's something that has presence. And somehow that alleviates a lot of the, the underlying mechanisms that hold you back uh, while suffering from something like that, because you alleviate a lot of the tension, anxiety, or mind control that these voices might uh, impose to you. Wow, that's so many amazing applications to when we think about mental health, which we have been covering a lot. So we can't really talk about the future of anything without covering a couple of topics. One is education, the other is mental health. The other is security. So a lot of things that, that covering is just mandatory, right? Uh, so, you know, let's try to change the topics here. So when, one of the projects that you are involved is games for changes. So I've covered a lot, you know, entertainment and, and, and the gaming industry. We never really talked about gamification for impact. So using games to address real world challenges, advance equity, inclusion, also dealing with mental health. Could you comment on that? Absolutely. So let's say that games are engaging and games offer us loops that they are bonding, they are loops that they are fulfilling, the loops that they are hedonic. You know, it's like their attraction into playing game and we use these same mechanisms in order to have engagement with therapeutic content. The principle is that, that because of the engagement of play, you can put it in the context of education and various other uh, contexts of therapy and others and improve the outcomes. So gaming is mechanics and it's the principle of engagement and entertainment that you bring into to other fields. And it's very, very powerful. It alleviates stress a lot of times when there are different modes of play and different game design methods. So based on whether you want to do something collaborative, it's something competitive, something this, something that, you can find the, the right methods. There is gamification that flooded the industry uh, some years ago and we're not exactly talking about gamification. Gamification is like the first step. It's like, oh, let's assume something is a game. In our case, we're talking about bringing the, the core of games theory into these kinds of, uh, of applications. So do you, do you think, and again, right, talking about inclusion and, and being accessible. So the impression that I have today is that all those technologies and all those potentials of, of using it is still not really being accessible to people that you know actually need it. It's all still in this very restrict and testing environment, right? And and my guess is that it still depends on the whole chain uh, getting involved. There's not only supply and demand, but interest in you know, the government and the whole players being interested in investing on that. Uh, but, you know, how do you see also this evolution of getting people that needs this type of, you know, different treatments and accesses to technologies to, to, to be something more democratic to all? It cannot but be democratic because otherwise the health economics don't hold. You know, it's like um, unless you see something in scale and see the savings from improving mental health in your community versus the cost of mental health and access to mental health interventions and all that, and then you see headset and content that can be distributed and all that, but still a technology and there's some cost, unless there is scale, you cannot see the benefits. That's why everyone is committed in scaling these uh, interventions. 
what the pandemic uh, did is accelerate the narrative of uh, the digital um, transformation of healthcare. We've been talking about the digital transformation of healthcare for the past 20 years. There was so much resistance. You know, we've seen massive adoption of telehealth in a week that we haven't seen in the past 10 years. Exactly, exactly. And there was actually a fight against it from a regulatory point of view, right? Yeah. Correct. And from many points of view, they're, they're, they're massive industries, the the disruptions and this and that. But that's what would be good to avoid this time. And across the path for the digital transformation of uh, healthcare, you inject the powerful mediums of AR, VR, and mixed reality. That's the whole thesis. Yes, makes sense. Okay, so, you know, uh, moving on, one of the things you mentioned to me, you know, when we first met is also how you're involved with, you know, you could be talking about the future of medium and using VR for impact and immersive journalism. And as much as, you know, I've, I've been reading about all these advancements and being able to use not only on a point of view of content distribution, but user experience, the way that the technology is evolving. And there was a report from EY stating that one of the future's main challenges is going to be the fight against fake news, which we are it's already happening now, but it's going to be like this whole different level because of the advancements of what they call synthetic media, which is going to be impossible for a regular person like myself to see the difference of a fake video of somebody talking about something. And I'm following this guy on LinkedIn. The name is Deep Fake, and he's just pretending he's Morgan Freeman's voice. And it's just amazing how it really sounds like him talking to you, right? So basically, in the future, we won't be able to, to believe our eyes and believe what we are listening to because the fake will be too real for us. So I'd love to know your thought about that. How do you think that as the technologies are evolving in that way, are the safeguards going to be also evolving in a way that we will be able to somehow be identifying what's real, what's not real? Very interesting. Absolutely. I mean, there will be a massive confusion in the beginning. I believe that's where the interest in NFTs is going to be because there needs to be a certificate of authenticity that comes from the source. I mean, we cannot we cannot proceed with a culture where everything that is authentic and certified is in the same bag with everyone else's opinions. They're welcome. I mean, even deep fakes are welcome, but it's only about the label. Do you understand that that's deep fake? Enjoy it. <laughs> you know, but don't think that this is real. Exactly, like it's stated, like it's in, it's entertainment, right? It's not Correct. Yeah. So to the degree that that will be the trend, and we'll talk about easy certification of authenticity and this and that, I think we can mitigate the risk. It requires a lot of parties to come together, from policy makers to distributors, from technology owners, and of course the, the public. There needs to be a public demand. Something that... Apparently, uh, so far, what we've seen is that media divided people, social media isolated people. And, you know, we reached a point that, you know, we need to actively reverse the, the damage. 
hence why the, the whole thing with the, uh, Facebook jumping in the metaverse and all that is a little bit confusing, alarming, silly. You know, there are a lot of principal components that you can judge a decision from a multi-billion corporation like that making these bold statements at the same time that they don't mean much to uh, people. Okay, got it. So, you know, you mentioned the metaverse, which, you know, being involved in VR, AR, and full-body immersive experience is something that is kind of what you're already living, right? So in your opinion, which industries, we talked about the healthcare, we talked about entertainment, but which industries you think will be ahead of this game. Like that are, are for sure, the ones that are already paying attention to it, already talking about it, at least investigating or investing. What's your thought on that? The metaverse is a concept that's somewhat based on reality. What is happening is like the fundamental layers of technologies that pave for what we call Industry 4.0, Industry 5.0. Within these technologies, we have spatial computing. Spatial computing is the idea that databases have information about transactions, objects, uh, entities, and all that will have also spatial coordinates. It's the only way for having robots, devices, AI, and humans all working together in the physical world. It's not just a database that describes a 2D environment or a transactional environment, but it has spatial coordinates. And within the spatial coordinates, there are other coordinates as well that had to do with security and what kind of permissions its agent has, and it's going to be a complex future. So Facebook has almost nothing to do with that complexity. The metaverse has almost nothing to do with that complexity. This is a complexity that is being done fundamentally at the ground levels of infrastructure and the vision of computer science that a lot of uh, Silicon Valley companies and deep tech and big tech embraced as the next computing platform. So within that narrative, Facebook has a, let's say, rather <laughs> unsocial business plan uh, that Today, we, we see clearly they face a lot of scrutiny. People massively close their accounts. It's not relevant to, to the young population. So, you know, it's not a, a healthy business model, you know, regardless how others might per perceive it. You know, it's based on advertisement, exploitation of personal data, all kinds of exploitation in exchange of services. Now, what we call the metaverse, and it was funny to see the reaction from uh, Microsoft, from other companies that they are also in this deep tech de development. All the CEOs are making their statements now, right? Correct, correct. <laughs> and what they're actually saying is like, this is deep tech. This is deep tech. You cannot uh, create a platform and own the, the next internet, let's say, just because you, you put a label there and you call it the metaverse. And what these other companies do is they adopt the term, but dilute the content, the message. So it's not Facebook's metaverse, it's everyone's metaverse, it's uh, Microsoft, it's Teams metaverse, it's uh, Epic and uh, Fortnite metaverse, it's the second life coming uh, again from the dead. Exactly. I heard that a lot, yeah. Regardless, when this gets materialized, when it gets, it, it creates a, a tremendous confusion. And the problem is that nobody focuses and sees the human behind these technologies to understand that even if you have the metaverse, it's, it won't go, going to be a choice whether you live in the physical world 
or the metaverse. We're not talking about that. The metaverse is going to be the next computing platform. You're going to do some stuff there. Yeah, okay, fine. But the way Facebook, for example, portrays it, paints the image for everyone, it's confusing and, and psychotic because it's like, oh, we are all for the social good and social functions like entertainment and meeting each other, socialization and work and um, this and that. They can all transcend experience in the metaverse. Therefore, you know, they create a future where you're going to wear your headset to work, to entertain, to meet friends, to do this, to do that. And suddenly, a sane people, a person will ask the question, so how much time am I going to spend in there? And when it goes to time, you're like, first of all, we don't have the technologies for long-term exposures, and we won't have them for a little while. You know, my personal take is that we need at least 10 years to have comfortable headsets that properly accommodate the senses that you can have for long hours with no, let's say, significant issues. And then the the second one is like, in order to maintain a virtual representation of world, of a social living or whatever, you need to take time and material from your physical environment. So if I maintaining my virtual environment, that means that I'm stealing from my physical environment and what I could do there. The same with my time that I spend there with other people. I'm stealing the time from my kids, from my family. So eventually, either you maintain a very healthy balance between this transaction or you get lost in one or the other. That's why the Facebook's narrative doesn't hold because it doesn't take into account this transaction that there is physical energy and time allocation that transits from the physical environment to the virtual in order to build your metaverse, your own metaverse, not the infrastructure, but you as a member in the in the metaverse. And it's going to be interesting when people will demand this transaction and say, I'd love to work uh, in the metaverse, but not, not more than, I don't know, an hour a day. Not do eight hours in there, and so on and so forth. That will normalize on how these technologies will get embedded in our lives. Yeah, yes, it does. And it's actually a great, great way to end this episode, which I actually didn't want to. I just wanted to keep talking to you. But I thank you so, so much for your time. Super interesting. I hope, you know, you're able to come back some other day. And, you know, I'll leave the last word for you. If you have anything else to tell our listeners, please go ahead. It was a real great pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me over. And no, my, my last thing will be have no fear about the future. It's like uh, fear doesn't help. I often uh, hear people like, oh, Facebook will do that. They're trying to enslave us. Uh, Microsoft is the king of the world. It's like, yeah, okay, these are narratives. Corporate entities have narratives. We need alternative narratives. There's not just one future. There's millions of futures. Lead by example, have no fear, adapt technologies, but bring the element of responsibility, not just opportunity. Whoever owns the technology, the platform and all that, they should be responsible and accountable. As long as that happens, everything will be fine. Perfect. Thank you. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.